You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. I want to start in Isaiah chapter 59. We on Wednesday nights have been walking through a doctrinal study. We're calling it the great doctrines of our faith and their relevance for our Life. So we've been kind of looking at the major doctrinal realities that we build our faith upon, that we believe, that we hold to, that we stand on. Uh, these are the, the, you might say, the non-negotiables of, of who we are. And we've been walking through these doctrines and trying to make some application to the way it affects our lives. And we've talked about the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of humanity and now we've come to the doctrine of salvation. This will take us at least a couple of weeks to do this. And, um, and, and then we will move on from there. We'll talk about the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of last things, end time stuff after this. And uh, excited about that. But tonight we're going to talk about the doctrine of salvation. And really what I want to do tonight is I want to, or begin to do tonight, is I want to answer uh, three questions uh, about uh, salvation. Three questions about salvation. Here are the three questions. Why does a person need to be saved? And we've kind of touched on this with the doctrine of humanity. Second question is, how is a person saved? And third, what does it mean to be saved? Okay, so why does a person need to be saved? Why do we use that terminology? Why does the Bible use that terminology? How is a person saved? And what does it mean to be Safe. So we're going to look at those questions uh, tonight. Before we do it, let me pray for us and ask God's blessing on our time together. Father, we come to you tonight in Jesus' name, and we are grateful for, Lord, all the ways that you bless us. Lord, the, the ways that you bless us that we see and experience and know, and those ways that you bless us that we're not even aware of, God. You are a God who provides. You are a God who protects. You are a God who, um, who works in our lives. You are a God who works through our lives. You are a God who is at work all around us all the time, and we are just grateful for that. And we are just, um, we are just thrilled tonight uh, to know Christ and to know that our sins are forgiven, to have this relationship with you. And Lord, I pray that as we study the doctrine of salvation, that you would encourage us, that you would, um, Lord, help us just to fall more in love with Jesus. And we'll thank you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, the doctrine of salvation. Question number one, why does a person need to be saved? There are at least two answers to that question. The first answer is sin separates us from a holy God. Sin separates us from a holy uh, God. So the Bible is very, very clear. God made us. You read about that over in Genesis chapter 1. And God made us with a plan and purpose. And God gave us his commandments and expectations as to how we ought to live our lives. Our lives, living our, our lives in a way that honors and glorifies him. But the Bible is clear that we've all blown it. 
All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you don't have to spend a lot of time convincing someone that they've messed up because everyone understands that they are not perfect. I mean, you would have a hard time finding someone anywhere in the world that would say, yeah, I'm perfect. I'm perfect. We all understand we're not perfect. But I think some people struggle to to understand the implications of their sin. And notice there, sin separates us from a holy God. The word holy is of absolute importance. Now, what's the word holy mean? The word holy in this context means that God is a God of absolute moral perfection, perfect purity. Over in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, the Bible says that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Habakkuk 1 says that God is God is so pure, he cannot even look upon evil. So when someone disobeys a holy God, when someone sins against a holy God, someone rebels against a holy God, that sin, that impurity, separates them from that holy God. Unforgiven sin cannot exist in the presence of God. And so Isaiah 59, 2 Reminds us of this reality. I I had to learn this verse in personal evangelism in seminary. We took a class about sharing your faith. And we had to memorize a bunch of verses. I remember learning this verse in seminary because it so so succinctly uh, points to this issue that we're talking about. It says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not here. So we see there the, the, the results of sinning against a holy God. It brings about separation. It's as if when we sin, there is a wall of impurity between us and a holy God. And all of humanity finds himself in that condition because we have all sinned against a perfectly holy God. And it gets even worse, okay, because we sin... Not only are we separated, but we deserve His punishment and wrath. We deserve His punishment and wrath. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. In other words, what we deserve as a result of our sin is death. Now, the Bible talks about death in a couple ways. When, When sin entered the world through the sin of Adam and Eve, death came with it. And sin began to corrupt everything, and and death became a reality, a reality that we we still deal with today. We deal with mortality because sin entered the world. Um, The Bible says the last enemy to be destroyed is death, but death is a reality we all deal with, and it all goes back to sin. But the Bible also talks about, in the book of Revelation, a second death, and this is eternal separation from God if you do not know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. So one of my heroes, Adrian Rogers, used to say it like this. He said, if you're only born once, you'll die twice. So if you've been born into this world, you, you born with a sin nature, you sin against God, you'll experience physical death and you'll experience the second death, eternal separation from God. But if you're born twice born of your mother and born again, then you only die once. So, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Does that make sense? 
And that speaks of this, this second death, this eternal separation from God. And the Bible's very clear about this over in the book of Revelation uh, chapter 20, the very end of that chapter where uh, the Bible speaks of the great white throne of judgment. And it's interesting that when people come before the great white throne of judgment, before they are assigned to eternity in the lake of fire where Satan will be thrown, um, there'll be no excuses, there'll be no arguing your case because the Bible says that the great white throne of judgment, and these are unsaved people before a holy God, that books will be opened. Books of remembrance. And so if, if, if someone tried to argue with the judge on that day, the books will be open. And everyone will say, oh, yeah, I, I, I sinned against a holy God. And not just once, but many, many times. So because we sin, we deserve his punishment and wrath. So you see, before we talk about the good news, and there is good news coming, before we talk about the good news, there is some bad news. God is holy, and we've all sinned against Him. We've all rebelled against Him. We've all done things God's told us not to do, not done things God's told us to do. And because we've sinned, we deserve His punishment and His wrath. So we need to be saved, right? We need to be saved from, our, from the penalty our sin deserves. We need to be saved from the wrath of God that our sin deserves. And it needs to happen... On this side of eternity. Because if we die separated from God, we will spend eternity separated from God. So whatever needs to happen needs to happen in this life. Which leads to the second question. How is a person saved? If we need to be saved from our sin, how does it happen? Well, that's where we get into the gospel. And the word gospel simply means good news and the Bible defines this good news. We don't have to wonder what the gospel is. Uh, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And when I talk about the gospel, I talk about it under two headings. The first heading is the historical event. The good news is that something happened in human history that provides salvation, redemption, forgiveness for sinners. Something happened in human history. And Paul tells us exactly what that something is. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So he says... This, this gospel is what he's, he's delineating here. And he says in verse 3, I delivered to you as a first importance. So this gospel, this good news, is a, is a first priority type message. He says, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. And here it is. He's going to define the gospel for us. The historical event. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
And so Paul is saying there's good news. Something happened in human history. Here's what happened. Jesus, Son of God, eternal second person of the Trinity who took on human flesh. Jesus came to this earth, died for our sins. That's called substitutionary atonement. He was buried, then he rose bodily from the grave, rose on the third day, accordance with the scriptures. And that's Paul's way of saying these, these events were prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus was fulfilling what the Old Testament told us was going to happen. So there's the historical event, what Jesus Christ did for us. And, and the, the entire Bible, and this is very important, the entire Bible points to this Event. It points to the, the finished work of Christ. I read this quote earlier by an author named Tim Keller. He wrote, The Bible is not a series of Aesop's fables telling us how to live a good life. And a lot of people approach the Bible as just a, a book of moral do's and don'ts. There certainly are commands and there are do's and don'ts in the scriptures. But if that's the way you approach the Bible, you're missing the major point. The Bible is not a series of Aesop's fables telling us how to live a good life. Instead, it is a single, coherent history. A wonderful, true story about the ways God was bringing salvation into the world, ways that all climaxed in Jesus Christ. So the entire Bible is about what God has provided through His Son to save sinners like you and me. That's what the Bible is about. It's one big story. So that's the historical event. These things really happened in human history. And for someone to be saved, they need to believe this. They need to believe this happened. Over in Romans 10, 9, it says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has what? Raised him from the dead. So we have to believe these things. All right. That is the historical event. Now, this is critical. Well, let me say two things about this. Number one, this is the gospel as defined by God's word. If someone is preaching a gospel different than this, Paul said in God's word, Galatians 1, let him be accursed. You don't tinker with the gospel. This is the message that saves. Over in Romans 1, 16, it says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first, also the Greek. And so we don't tamper with this message it's what Jesus Christ has done, the historical event. But just knowing these things about history doesn't save you. This is critical. You've got to personally respond to what Christ has done for you. And this is what I call the personal response. The personal response. Two words, repentance and faith. Repentance is the first blank, faith is the second blank. How does someone respond to what Christ has done? Repentance and faith. The word repentance simply means turning. It means that you, you recognize the path you're on apart from Christ leads to destruction. And you realize you can't save yourself. And so if you want to be saved, you don't stay on this path, right? You've got to, you've got to turn, go another direction. That's what the word repentance means. And the Bible teaches about it in many different places. Let's look at a couple. Look in 1 Thessalonians with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9. 
Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica. He's grateful for what he's hearing about this church and their witness. I love 1 Thessalonians. But verse 9 he says, They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you received us when we came and preached the gospel in Thessalonica, and how you turned to God, watch this, from idols to serve the living and true God. In other words, you realize you were serving a false god or false gods. You realize the way you were going was a way that led to destruction. So you turned from that way to Christ. That's repentance. And repentance is a big deal. It's a big deal that we talk about this doctrine of repentance because the Bible speaks so uh, poignantly of it. Uh, And it's interesting here, it says they turned to gods from idols. I've I've spent a good amount of time in India, and you got to be really careful when you're preaching to a group of of listeners in India because, um, you know, the predominant religion in India is Hinduism, and Hinduism has something like 30 million gods, right? And so a tendency could be if you come and preach about Jesus, Jesus saves, Jesus loves you, they'll say, well, yeah, I'll add Jesus onto my 30 million, you know, just to cover all my bases. You know, I'm, I'm worshiping Shiva and Krishna and these different, but yeah, let me, let, me, let me throw a little Jesus in there too, right? Now that is, that is ascribing, um, ascribing or giving a, a, a profession of faith in Christ without the repentance. So when you're in a culture like that, you have to be very careful. When you say you're following Jesus, you're saying, I renounce these 30 million gods. They're false gods. And I'm turning to Christ. Now that's a dramatic example, but it needs to happen in all of our lives. where We understand we can't save ourselves. That we are headed on a road to destruction apart from Christ and we want to turn from that whatever we're trusting in, trusting in ourselves, trusting in our goodness, trusting in our religious background, trusting in our religious ceremonies. We, we turn from that to Christ. That's called repentance. It, it, it's found over in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when, when Peter was preaching. Look what he says in Acts chapter 2. Verse 38. He's preaching and it says that the, the people, the listeners were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Let me just make a quick little parenthetical, parenthetical statement here. There's a group of people in Christianity that think that invitations are outdated. That you know, calling people to come and be saved is kind of, kind of old school, and maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we shouldn't do that. Um, Peter invites. Look what it says here. It says, "Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." And then it says uh, in verse forty-one, they received his word and were baptized. They responded to his invitation to be saved, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. But notice there, repent, repent, repent. He's calling them to repent from their, their trajectory, their, 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 their belief system, and, and turn to Christ. And so repentance is of utmost importance. And then over in Acts chapter, that's in the Jewish world, in Acts chapter 20, uh, look what it says about Paul's ministry philosophy in the Gentile world. 
Acts chapter 20. He's speaking to the Ephesian elders, saying goodbye to them because he's going to Jerusalem. He knew he'd be arrested. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 21, he, just, he describes his ministry philosophy. Look what he says. He says, or back up to verse 20. You understand how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. So there's repentance there, and, and then there is faith. Trusting Christ, believing in Christ, uh, resting on the merits of another. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we studied this recently on Sunday morning. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. And, and let me show you another passage. Turn to Galatians very quickly. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. This Paul writing to the church in Galatia. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. That's one time he said that. But through what? Faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law too. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul's making it clear. He said it three times. You are not justified by keeping the rules, by achieving a moral standard. No matter how good you are, there is sin in your life that separates you from a holy God. That sin must be forgiven. And so he's saying it's not by fulfilling the works of the law. It is by faith in Jesus, trusting Christ and what he did for you, uh, placing your life in his hands, realizing the road you're on will not save you, you cannot save yourself. You turn from that and you place your faith and trust in Christ alone, repentance and faith. That's the gospel, historical event and the personal response. And if anyone adds to that simple good news message, again, Paul says, let him be accursed. The gospel is not Jesus plus anything. Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus church membership. Jesus plus denominational affiliation. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus saves. Trust him. He did everything necessary to save you. He died for your sins. He defeated sin at the cross. He rose from the grave. He defeated death itself. He's defeated sin and death. Trust him. And he will apply his finished work to your life and your sins will be washed away and you'll be given the hope of eternal life. Amen? It's very, very good news. So why does a person need to be saved? Sin separates us from a holy God. We deserve punishment when we sin. How is a person saved? By the gospel, historical event, and the personal response. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.